And these church Bibles, if you would like one, it's on page 1004. So that's Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing towards, forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw the him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to them, him, and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, will you join me now, please, as we pray to this mighty Father that Gareth has already uh, talked to us about and we've read about. Let's pray together. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we come before you on this first day of the week 
and bow in your presence as the awesome God, most high, far above all principalities and powers of which this world would boast. You are the great eternal creator and sustainer, ruler and judge. And Father, we know that it's only because of Christ and all that he has done for us that we could even contemplate approaching such a holy God. Those historical events of your life that we'll be studying in the coming weeks in Mark's gospel as we walk through this book are the bedrock of our faith, the glorious good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to men, and that he will one day return as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our foundation of eternal hope on which we stand. This is our only confidence in Christ alone. So whatever our past week has looked like, however many times we failed you, because of Christ, this is our standing this morning. We're forgiven, accepted, and welcomed by the one who invites us to call him Father. We bless you for that with all of our unworthy hearts. And Father, in this historic week in our land and our commonwealth, we would give you thanks for the 70 years you have granted Queen Elizabeth II to reign. We bless you that she has readily acknowledged her dependence on you, your word, and the prayers of her subjects. You have been her saviour and her rock these past years, and we are humbled by her servant heart. Will you continue to bless her and other followers of Jesus in the royal household and government and positions of great authority in our land as they seek to hold your name high in a world that has largely ignored you? And may we be those loyal subjects to King Jesus, that whether our days may be long or short, we will seek to live them with that same dependence on you, humbly serving one another for your glory. And Father, while we bless you for the relative stability in our land, we plead with you to restrain the hand of violence in our world at this time. We hardly know what to pray, but we pray specifically for the very serious situation in Ukraine, that war might yet be averted, that lives may not be lost, and that you will strengthen the hand of your people in that land. And Father, we do want to thank you so much for the way that you've blessed Snowden these past years. We thank you that men have found Christ in that place, that others have had their faith strengthened and others have learned what it means to be vulnerable with one another and with you. Please, will you bring blessing to that place again this year for the honour of your name and the good of our men. Indeed, Father, we pray for all of the men in this church family that they will be known to be men of God, men of integrity, dependent on you as they bear the ultimate responsibility for leading and loving their families well. And Father, because they are so precious to us, we do pray for those Christian wives, those Christian mums, 
married to unbelieving husbands who daily own the responsibility of being that loving, faithful witness in the home, the hardest place of all, as they seek to win over their husbands and nurture their dear children in the ways of God. May we, as a church, be a husband and father to those families. And Father, for the many others who every Sunday walk into this place and leave this place on their own for many different reasons, and for those here this morning who are new to Christian things, we pray that each one of them may know that they are highly valued and included in this church family in the same way that you welcomed us into your family. We belong to one another, we belong to Christ, and we are heavy-hearted when one part of the body is hurting. So we pray especially for our dear Jan. We thank you that she's home. We pray that Andy will be able to return home this week. Thank you for keeping his little granddaughter safe this week. And for Pat, will you be with her? And for those still struggling with COVID and for others who daily bear heavy burdens and long-term heartaches, may each of them know that you are their rock and their fortress, knowing you to be a loving, sovereign father who has their very best interests at heart and loves them very much. And now as we come to your word, we thank you for bringing Mike and Melissa and the family to Chesington. We pray for Mike with the awesome responsibility of preparing and prayer. And will you give us open minds and hearts as your word encourages and strengthens us, equipping us to face the week ahead for your glory. We ask all these things in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Val. Uh, We're going to sing one verse of the song. Uh, We'll stay seated, and uh, Jim is going to give us the note, and I will lead us. So don't leave me up here doing a solo, will you? We will sing this as uh, as a prayer. Speak. O Lord. The last 12 years, uh, my family lived in the great city of Manchester, which you may have heard has two big football teams, the Reds and the Blues. And when a Manchester club wins the league, the celebrations are amazing. 
A few years ago, my oldest son joined some friends in the city centre to celebrate their team's victory in the league. The streets were lined with thousands of people pressing in to see the team, cheering as the team came by with an open-top bus uh, holding the, the cup. Thousands of people creates an absolutely uh, electric atmosphere. Of course, crowds can be very dangerous too. Some years ago, my wife went to see the band U2 at a big venue here in London. And when the band came on, the whole crowd surged forward in excitement. And my wife, who is five foot two, fell and was trampled underfoot. And she was terrified, and actually is claustrophobic to this day. She narrowly escaped serious injury uh, because of the kindness of a group of Swedish U2 fans who were all over, well over six feet tall, and they grabbed her, picked her up, and crowd-surfed her <laughs> back, as U2 were playing, to the back of the uh, crowd, and they took her to the first aid tent, where she watched the concert with David Bowie and his wife. <laughs> Can't make it up, can you? Crowds, they can be exciting, they can be terrifying. Now, that is the atmosphere here in Mark chapter 3. If you've closed your Bible, do open it again. As we pick up here in verse 7, uh, Jesus withdraws, and a large crowd from Galilee follows. And when they hear what he's doing, many people come from all these other places as well. They're traveling from, from actually outside the country now. That's how electric it is. Um, people are pressing forward in a crazy crush. Everyone wants to get near him, especially the sick. Just imagine what it would be like if word got out that there was somebody here in Chesington who could heal any of your family from any disease. Imagine. You would stop at nothing to get to him. We've already seen some guys breaking through a, a roof uh, to get to him with a paralyzed friend. In verse 10, we read that those with diseases are pressing forward to touch him. It is chaos. Now, Jesus has already planned that he has a small boat ready as backup, and he's getting backed up against the shore. But along with the sick people, Jesus is also impacting another area of life, a, a darker area of dimension of life, the spiritual world. According to the Bible, there are evil spiritual forces at work in our world. Here, they're called impure or unclean spirits, elsewhere called demons, dark spirits, who can oppress people, who can influence society, who can even possess people. These spirits immediately recognize Jesus before anyone else does. They know who he is. It's like the presence of Jesus shines a torch in their face, and they shriek out, you are the Son of God, but he strictly orders them to be quiet. Why? Well, he really doesn't want the big reveal of his identity to be made by the powers of darkness, does he? <laughs> That's not the kind of witness you want to call to, you, to support you. And the language, son of God, to these people means king. That, uh, that language is particularly used in Psalm 2, one of the great psalms of the Old Testament, which talks about God's king, his coming Messiah. God says, you are my son. So when people hear son of God, they think God's king. Now, Jesus knows how politically volatile the country is. If word gets back to Herod Antipas that large crowds are gathering around a man claiming to be king, you can imagine what might happen. So Jesus is walking a knife edge. On the one hand, his compassionate heart 
and his mission means that he wants to demonstrate God's kingdom is near, and so he will heal all who come. But on the other hand, he has to keep buying time to teach and to preach because he must get the message out that the kingdom of God is near, but it's not what you think it is. You see the tension he's in. So you always get this thing running through the Gospels where Jesus, on the one hand, all the crowds are coming and he's healing and delivering, and then he's pulling away and teaching, 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 because he's trying to show that the kingdom is near and explain what it really is. You see this tension. Now, many of these people here are just coming to Jesus simply because he can heal. But they are not true followers. Others are coming to see miracles, signs, wonders. But they're not true followers either. There's a third group who are coming because they're threatened by Jesus. Because he's undermining their status. They are not true followers either. And Jesus knows all of this. He's not interested in simply getting a big crowd. In some ways, the crowds are getting in the way of the mission. So he does hear in this passage that Val read for us so wonderfully, three things to demonstrate what a true follower of Jesus looks like, what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. And let me say, these three things were scandalous in that time. And they still are. They were scandalous. Here's what it means to follow Jesus as a true follower. We say Christian, but it means a disciple of Jesus. Firstly, you have to recognize a new leadership. Secondly, receive a new forgiveness. And thirdly, redefine your family. Recognize a new leadership in authority over you. Receive a new forgiveness and redefine your family. So firstly, recognize a new leadership, uh, verse 13 to 19. Let me just ask a few quiz questions. You can join in, by the way, with this, like Gareth, we do questions. How many members of parliament are there? Anybody? 650. Pretty good. I didn't know that. Okay. Make, make the question harder. How many prime ministers have there been in this country? Anyone? Not sure. How many counties are there in England? Yeah. Okay. Few people know. These numbers aren't that important to us, really. But every Jew knew that there were 12 tribes of Israel. Every Jew. Or at least there had been 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 were pretty much the sons of Jacob. Jacob, Jacob and sons, remember that? That story's told in Genesis. And Jacob's other name is Israel. The descendants of the 12 tribes. Now, 10 of the tribes had been lost seven centuries earlier when the Assyrians invaded from the east and conquered the northern kingdom. So 10 tribes were lost. And by the way, they didn't go to America. Sorry if, if uh, anyone believed that. Uh, they're lost. To all intents and purposes, it looked like it was game over for Israel. There's only two tribes left. But the prophet spoke of a coming day of restoration, that God would, would restore the people. He would bring a new day. He would turn everything around, and they would be a great nation once again. So when Jesus calls 12, did you see that? He went up on a mountainside, and verse 13, he appointed 12 and gives them a special commission and a special status. Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, the new Israel is here. This is the restoration you've been waiting for. These are the new 12 tribes. 
And this restoration is coming in at every level with Jesus. The physical level with the healing. The spiritual with the, the liberations. The social level. The political level. Jesus is creating a new leadership. Going up into the hills and getting away from it all is Jesus getting away from prying eyes to forge a revolutionary group. These 12 are the, the, the leadership of a new Israel. And they knew how important it was. You know, the 12th name there in the list, uh, verse 19, Judas Iscariot was a betrayer. He took his own life. They still knew they needed 12. And so at the beginning of the book of Acts, they established the criteria for an apostle and cast lots and replace the 12th one. They needed 12. This is the new leadership of God's people under the leader, Jesus. So the first thing, this is really quite simple, First thing we learn about being a a true follower is you come under authority. Uh, If you're a Christian or you're exploring Christianity, Christians are under authority. You're under authority of the 12 apostles. And we have their teaching in the New Testament. Uh, 27 books of the New Testament we have in your your Bible is the apostles' teaching. And they assumed the authority of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament were assumed by Jesus and the apostles. So that word, of 66 books, is the authority we're under. That's why it's vital for a growing church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to be a learning church. Now, just let's pause and think, what does that mean for you this week, Monday morning? Some will be making their way to a workplace. Some will be getting up changing nappies. Some will be living their retirement days. What does it mean for you to be under the authority of Jesus and his apostles? Under the authority of God's word. Now before we move on to the second point, there are three subtle lessons we we also learn about being a true follower. Notice in verse 13, Jesus called... Those he wanted. And they came to him. You see, what we we see a hint of here is that behind any true follower's decision to follow is a prior decision, the decision of a sovereign God who called you. He calls, we follow. We would not have loved him if he had not first loved us. If you have heard the voice of Jesus and followed him, this is a great comfort, isn't it? Some years ago, a missionary, American missionary working, I believe it was in Thailand, was working with a group of women who were sex workers. They'd been sold into prostitution by their own families. And they, were, they, they had no, literally no self-regard at all. They, they loathed themselves, and he... He preached and preached about the love of God and the forgiveness of God, and it didn't go anywhere. And then he taught them a surprising thing. He said God is a sovereign king, and he elects and predestines and chooses, and God can choose you. And they they love to hear it because now someone had chosen them. God loved you in eternity past and called you to belong to him. What a comfort. He wanted you. Christian friend, take that to your heart. 
In verse 14, Jesus calls them so that they might be, look at the language, they might be with him. And here's the second thing we learn about being a follower. Now, they were with him in a special way. They were literally physically with Jesus. But the same principle applies to every follower. When you become a Christian, you're not simply adopting a new set of beliefs, although you are. When you become a Christian, you're not simply joining a church family, although you are. When you become a Christian, you you are entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns today. A real relationship with a real person who wants to be with you. So that means we must spend time with him in his word and in prayer and with his people. And how easy it is to lose sight of that, isn't it? We're so busy. I'm not here to scold you about your quiet times or lack of them. I'm just saying, all day long, just try and think. Jesus is with me. What a difference that makes. Then, verses 14 and 15, we see what they were appointed to do. Now, it had a specific role at a specific time. They were to be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So they had a very specific role at a specific time. But the principles here apply to all of us believers, every follower. We are to carry forward Jesus' work in his world. They were to extend his kingdom, so are we. That's why this building exists. It is a community outreach arm, King's Center, for the king's work to press out the kingdom of Jesus in Chesington and further afield. And we, we do it by deeds of love and mercy, by serving in the church and building the community of Jesus where we are, and by proclaiming, sharing his word with all who will listen to build them up. This, all of this is what it means to recognize a new leadership. That's the first thing we learn about being a follower. Secondly, you receive a new forgiveness. Followers are forgiven people. A, a true follower is one who receives a new forgiveness. Look again at your Bible at verse 20. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, when we read that, we're thinking, what's going on with Jesus' family? Notice how the story then kind of gets interrupted by another narrative, verse 22. The teachers of the law who come down from Jerusalem, and they say he's possessed by the devil. You know, he's only doing it by all his work by, by the prince of demons and all this stuff about demons. And then in verse 31, we pick back up with the family. Did you see that there? Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Now, what's going on here? It, it, starting off a story about the family and then interrupting it with another section of a different story and then coming back to the family is what the scholars call a sandwich. You've got bread, filling, and then the bread again. And this, there's, several, there's about nine of these sandwiches through Mark's Gospel. Um, I'll give you one example you might have heard of. The only negative miracle Jesus ever did was cursing a fig tree. Very strange thing to do. He never does stuff like this normally. And it says that Jesus goes to a tree. He sees there's no figs on it. He's hungry. There's no figs. And he curses the tree. You think, what's that about? And then he goes off and he goes to the temple and he clears the temple out and he says, you know, um, God said this should be a house of prayer but you've made it a a den of thieves and robbers. And then he comes out of the temple and he goes back and then we go back to the tree and the tree's dead. 
So you've got the tree, the temple, and the tree. It's a sandwich. What's the point of it? It's that the middle bit interprets what's going on on the outside. So the filling of the sandwich helps us understand what's going on in the bread. So we can't understand the fig tree, but what's going on in the temple illustrates it. Here we have the first sandwich, and it's this. The family come. They say there's an intervention. He's out of his mind. Get him out of there. Then it's interrupted by the religious leaders. They also think he's crazy and evil. And then we come back to the family. So there's there's a, a first sandwich. And it's written in this way to emphasize themes that Mark wants to give us. Mark wants us to think carefully. Why did he put this material like this in this way? The family come down to take charge of Jesus, verse 21, because they think he is mad. Jesus' own mother and brothers are actually opposed to him at this point. And in verse 31, they come outside the house where he's teaching and they send someone in to call him home. And Jesus severs the family tie in a single stroke. Isn't that extreme? What is Jesus doing? A friend of mine once preached on this text, and it was Mother's Day. <laughs> Who are my mother and my brothers, says Jesus. Not, you don't really want to preach on that on Mother's Day. But lest we should misunderstand Jesus, Mark inserts the middle of the sandwich And here we have some other people opposing him, the religious leaders, and they say he is wicked and evil. He must get his power from the demonic world. And Jesus defeats the argument by saying, just look at the logic here. This is illogical. To say that I'm an evil person and the way I'm being empowered is by destroying the demonic world. It doesn't work like that. But notice what he goes on to say, verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, many sensitive Christians over the years have been very troubled by these words. Maybe you have. What, if, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit which is unforgivable? Some people have been driven to despair by this, thinking that they have committed an unforgivable sin. I want to put your mind at rest here. The only sin that can't be forgiven is refusing the forgiveness of Jesus. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is refusing Jesus' forgiveness, which is what they are doing here. Now, make no mistake, this forgiveness, then, is absolutely radical. Look at verse 28. Truly, I tell you, that when Jesus says, truly, I tell you, he really wants to emphasize something. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. Do you believe that? A lot of people, even Christians, don't really believe this. People can be forgiven all their sins. Now, you may be here, friend. I don't know your heart. You may have been not able to forgive yourself for something. You're bound by it. You live in guilt. 
listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. Truly, he says, people can be forgiven all their sins, everything, wiped away, absolutely clean. Now, that is radical, isn't it? I think we all like the idea that God, God will forgive us. Jean-Paul Sartre, French writer, said, God will forgive me, that's his job. We all quite like the idea that we'll be forgiven, but what about those other people? The people we think of as really bad. The ones we wouldn't forgive. John Newton was an English sailor turned slave trader who sailed the seas, participating in the most wicked and evil expression of slavery that has ever disgraced the world, the transatlantic slave trade between Britain and North America and other countries. People were literally ripped from their families, or whole families were taken, on dreadful ships, on voyages of several months. Many of the slaves would die, the conditions were so bad, and sold into slavery for good. That man who sold people into slavery became a Christian. And here's the thing. He even continued in slave trading for some time after becoming a Christian because it was seen as acceptable. He was the one that wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What do we think about somebody like that being forgiven, everything being pardoned? One of the greatest books about John Newton is, was written by Jonathan Aitken. Aitken, you may remember, was himself a, a senior member of parliament, a cabinet minister, perjured himself, part of a scandal, lied under oath, was sentenced to prison, lost everything. Whilst in prison and in disgrace, he discovered the grace of God to him and he was saved. He was forgiven. I, I remember talking to a colleague when I, I was working in business up in London years ago, and she said of Aitken, oh, come on, really? You just say sorry and you get forgiven. You get let off everything. Is that, is that it really it? Yes. It is offensive, isn't it? Part of us doesn't want those sorts of people to be forgiven. This is Jesus talking. All your sins. So becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, accepting new leadership, now means accepting this radical forgiveness. You need to be forgiven and God can do it and he is willing to do it for you. If we place restrictions on what Jesus can do, on who he should forgive, then we're saying we know better than him, better than God, and that places us outside of Jesus' community. Mark is showing us here the biological family are just as bad as the teachers of the law. They're not calling for a friendly family uh, meeting here. They want to rein him in and stop him. And any opposition to Jesus is satanic. So Christians here, let me just say, if you are a, a follower of Jesus, do you need to, to enter into that full, free forgiveness once again this morning? Take your sin, whatever it is, and lay it at the foot of his cross and have nothing more to do with it. He died for you. New authority, new forgiveness. Finally, redefine your family. 
This is perhaps the most shocking thing. Certainly to the people of that time, it was shocking because family was everything. Family was the core of your place in society. It was where you belonged. It's how you knew who you were. It was, you might say, family was your identity. Your family was your life. And here, Jesus reevaluates the significance of our biological family ties. Have a look then at verse 31. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told, they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus means here that his true family are those who are aligned to God's purposes. His true family are those who are loyal to Jesus above all rivals. And to all of those who would join it, Jesus offers you the opportunity to join his family. Not just become a, a, a kind of a, another number on a sheet, but actually to be part of Jesus' family, to be adopted by God. Now remember that language earlier on when he said he called those he wanted? Sounds exclusive. Here, Jesus throws the doors wide open. Anyone who comes in and obeys and does the will of God becomes a member of his family. Anyone. So he redefines family for us beyond the biological basis of the nuclear family and the clan and the tribe. What does this mean for us, friends? Do we at King's Church define our family by our blood relationships or by belonging to Jesus? And if so, how does it shape decisions for us like how we relate to brothers and sisters who are not like us? People who we wouldn't naturally be friends with. They are now family. What are the implications of that for you? How does it shape your uh, membership of a small group, a life group, a women's Bible studies, any kind of small group, how, if that's your family, how does it shape the way your home is open to other people? How you share your heart, as Val prayed earlier on, that we are vulnerable with one another in appropriate ways? How does it shape decisions like the priority of Sunday worship, where we gather as a family? We are Family. I got all my sisters and me. You know that one? Does our shared commitment to Jesus bind us closer together, especially when things go wrong? And I want to get really real about this because there's a lot of problems going around churches all around the country the last few years. I've seen a lot of it through friends and church planting and, and there's, a, there's a trend that we, we've got to be very, very careful about. And it's this. The church is full of broken people, Right? I hope that's obvious. We are very imperfect and flawed, all of us. I am, you are. Do you know what that means? We will disappoint one another. We will. It's, it's, it's not a question of whether or not the church will disappointment, disappoint you. It will disappoint you at, at some point. You will be hurt by other Christians. Church can hurt you. It can be a very hurtful place. It can be a very disappointing place. And we're all a work in progress. Now, how should we process our pain and our disappointment and our hurt from our brothers and sisters? 
Here's the answer. We've got to work it through like a good family. But what's happening in churches all around this country is people are not responding to their hurt and disappointment like a good family, but they're responding to it by cancelling the church or its leaders or other people in the church and by destroying the relationships through actually through processes that they've brought from the culture. Particularly writing statements, letters of complaint, and using social media to hurt people back. This is happening all over the country. Now, if we're really serious about being family, we can't live like that. You fall out with somebody and you leave, and then you write a horrible letter, and then you tell everybody about it, and then you put it on social media. We can't live like that. It is destroying churches already, by the way. Churches have been torn apart by this kind of thing. We must learn how to live as, as good family. And that means, in a good family, you have to talk and work things through, and sometimes it's really painful. We have to learn how to say sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm imperfect. I'm immature. I, I, I failed you. I'm really sorry. Can we work this through together? We've got to learn to live like that, friends, if we're serious about Jesus we're being brothers and sisters of Jesus. You with me? Now, this also is great news for those who are without a family, as Val prayed earlier, those who come in and leave alone. You now have a greater family. Amen? Sometimes churches, sadly, show an unconscious bias towards the family. We talk about, you know, we, we assume that people have kids and things like that. It's, 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 it can, it's unspoken, it's not deliberate, it's another area of our failure. We must remember that our Lord was a single man. And the greatest missionary and church planter of the early church, Paul, was a single man. They were single, but they were never alone because they had a greater family. It's not all about having, uh, getting married and having kids. It's about being part of Jesus' family. Family is redefined. We need to recognize also the hard call that some people will have to make I saw this in Manchester in an international church. I'm sure it happens here too. For some, following Jesus will mean a wrenching choice because they will lose their biological family. A close friend of my dad, who passed away a, a year or two back, Shamim Hossein, uh, was brought up in a, a devout Muslim family. He came to this country. He heard about Jesus. He, he became a Christian. He gave his life to Christ. His father called him in and said, I hear what you've done, and I'm going to say this to you now, Shamim. You've renounced Jesus now, or I will cut you out of the family. The young man. He said, Dad, I can't, I can't turn my back on Jesus. His father never spoke to him again. He was disinherited. He was out of the family. He left the house with 12 pounds in his pocket and bought a train ticket to London can't find his way. He lost his family, but he gained a greater one. He would say, be careful if you pray for a Muslim to become a Christian. If you pray that, you've got to be prepared to let them actually join your family, because they might lose theirs. Sobering, isn't it? Some will, some will lose their family, but they will gain a greater one. Final implication, and here I close. For all of us, if we are that kind of family, it will give us courage. To face the world. Here is a quotation from a writer called David Garland. As our world is drawn closer together, 
by communication and travel, we seem to be growing further apart. Jesus' definition of family embraces those outside of one's kith and kin as brother, sister. His understanding counters the tribalism and the ethnic strife that rears its ugly head in our cities and nations all around the world. General Colin Powell told the story of a young African-American soldier who asked if he was afraid, who was asked if he was afraid on the eve of going into battle. He said, I'm not afraid. And the reason I'm not afraid is that I'm with my family. And he pointed to the, to the rest of his unit, composed of black, white, and Asian young adults. That's my family, he said. We take care of one another. We take care of one another. So friends, let's make that our motto for this week as we come under the leadership of the apostles, as we receive the forgiveness full and free for us, and we redefine our family as King's Church. Let's pray.